Welcome to The Road Untraveled. Today's guest is Brad Feld, founder and managing partner of The Foundry Group. Brad needs no introduction, but for anyone that doesn't know him, Brad's been an early stage investor and entrepreneur since 1987. Aside from Foundry, he's also the co-founder of Techstars. Brad is a writer and frequent speaker on the topics of venture capital investing and entrepreneurship. He's written a number of books as part of the Startup Revolution series and writes the blogs Feld Thoughts and Venture Deals. And for anyone entering the venture capital ecosystem, Venture Deals is certainly a must-read. Brad got his bachelor's and master's from MIT, and in his free time, a little fun fact, he's completed 25 marathons as part of his mission to finish a marathon in each of the 50 states. I really enjoyed this interview, and I hope you do as well. This is The Road Untraveled. Hey, Brad, how's it going? It's uh, pretty good today, although lots of challenging things going on in our world and lots of emotional ups and downs as a result. I hear that. I hear that. And uh, for anyone joining us, uh, we're, we're very excited to have Brad Fell of the Foundry Group. Uh, I'm just going to dive in because I, I think of so many things that we could talk about. But to begin, you know, your work on, on all things, you know, racial diversity and Black Lives Matter, you put out a piece recently about the you know importance of attention span, recognizing that a lot of people have short attention spans and that you know issues like this are going to continue to arise and, and that we need to continue to focus on them. Talk a little bit about the work that you and Amy do uh, for people in in you know people of color and in, in, in the diverse communities. Well, on the short attention span, um, uh, it's a concern that I have because uh, we as humans, we naturally have reasonably short attention spans. And our, you know, our media dynamics today and, and especially social media amplification causes us to not follow through and not really persist with change, but react in the moment. Uh, and I was I, I generally have a view that things take a decade to 20 years to really have impact. Uh, and I saw something that somebody wrote the other day that we've been dealing with uh, racial inequity in this country for over 400 years. <clears throat> so, you know, the idea that uh, the dynamic uh, that's going on socially today um, uh, is one where my, my fear is that people will, will move on without staying with it. And, you know, my view is at this moment in time, um, our goal should be uh, to completely eliminate racism in our country. Um, I, I think, you know, I put myself in the category of being willing to say enough and, you know, it's time uh, to stop just kind of making incremental progress and incremental change and actually commit to uh, eliminating racism, which is uh, something that is not going to happen in a week or a month or a year. Um, but if uh, there's a long view, uh, can be dramatically impacted. Um, you know, the other part of it is we're in the midst of uh, four crises that are all triggered by COVID. Um, you know, we have a health crisis uh, that has triggered an economic crisis. We wouldn't have the economic crisis without the health crisis. And notwithstanding what the public markets are doing, um, you know, we have a huge number uh, uh, of people unemployed in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, I find it entertaining that the unemployment numbers move around as dramatically, not by like a fraction of a percentage point, but the corrections are three percentage points two days or three days after they 
uh, issue the original numbers. I mean, that's an insanely large yeah. range. And um, the, the economic crisis is generating a mental health crisis, uh, the health and the economic crisis. And look, I think the racial inequity crisis is in, independent, but interwoven. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there is no question that there are second order effects that are extremely uncomfortable um, that are both, you know, positive and negative from all of these dynamics. And, you know, I'm just hopeful that people won't have short attention span with this. Uh, and I, I, I certainly don't intend to. Um, Amy and I had this conversation, my, my wife, Amy Bachelor, and I had this conversation the other day. We've been investing uh, and, con- and contributing through our foundation philanthropically to social justice initiatives for 20 years. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we've done and been involved in and supported and tried to be helpful with. Um, but in the context of enough, uh, it's not nearly enough. Uh, I reflect on where we are today in 2020. And uh, I'm hopeful that there's uh, a wide range of people in our country that feel like whatever they've been doing to try to be helpful, to try to be allies and advocates uh, to black people, uh, to people of color, uh, you know, to, to uh, other people who have suffered from racial inequity, that uh, there's wh- whatever we've done up to this point has not enough and it's time to really commit to changing it. Yeah, I appreciate your thoughts there. Uh, let's talk specifically about you know, how you think the tech community is either well positioned or not well positioned to sort of lead that charge. So so whether you want to use big tech and the Facebooks and the Twitters and sort of owning the social distribution channels or smaller entrepreneurial ecosystems where, where maybe racial inequity uh, is easier to fix than, say, a, a Goldman or a Morgan Stanley. You know, what, what do you think is, is the tech community's response and what are the things that you're seeing? as best practices from leaders in the tech community. Yeah, I I am much more uh, optimistic about bottom-up responses in general than top-down responses. Um, I think that uh, large tech companies will have a range of things that they do. Um, I do think that it's important for them to look internally uh, as to whether they, independent of what they use their dollars for, uh, for example, philanthropically, whether their businesses themselves are actually helping or hurting. Um, And I'd probably put Facebook in the center of this um, because I think of all of the companies uh, that uh, have influence, it it strikes me continuously that uh, it's the most... I don't know, tone deaf is not quite the right phrase, but it's close. Something. Like, you know, my, 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 my simple reaction is what the fuck? Like take some responsibility yep. for what's going on here and, and, and don't sort of raise your hands and back away and say it's not our responsibility uh, based on where we are. And by the way, it's not just a Facebook issue. It's a very, very sure. top down issue. But, um, you know, it's it just it 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 baffles me and it and it. Uh, baffles, upsets, offends, a lot, list of negative emotions. Um, you know, from the bottom up, like I, I have a very simple mental model for this, which is that um, people have to impact things, not organizations. So I think it's a mistake to anthropomorphize industries uh, or companies uh, in this regard. Sure, companies and industries can have 
coordinated influence, but fundamentally people have to engage. And uh, as a white male, um, I learned early on in my efforts around uh, gender equity, uh, which really started in tech in 2005 when I joined and then became chair of an organization called National Center for Women Information Technology. Um, NC Wit's mission was to get more girls and women involved in computer uh, computer science uh, and and tech. And again, let's go back to 2005, right? So this wasn't a 2018, mm-hmm. 2017 initiative. Um, as an organization, it's had huge amounts of influence. Um, and what I realized after getting involved in the person that recruited me was Lucy Sanders, who's the, the founder and the CEO, and ha- is just a remarkable, uh, remarkable person. Um, within about six months, I realized that I had absolutely no idea of what the real dynamics were uh, and what the real issues were. And I saw, uh, especially in tech, white men show up over and over again and tell the women, this is the solution to the problem. This is the problem. You are the problem. This is how you fix it. This is what needs to be done. Um, and almost everything that that these men were saying were it was either it was much of it was well intentioned, but much of it was wrong. Uh, it was insensitive. It was uh, off putting. It was demeaning. It was just not that helpful. Um, and a lot of the anecdotal information, again, was just wrong. It wasn't data driven. It wasn't from a position of understanding, and it certainly wasn't from a position of lived experience. Uh, and so. For me, in the context of Black Lives Matter and and uh, getting uh, uh, changing the dynamics in tech, uh, my approach personally has been uh, to simply uh, and assertively show up and say, uh, "How can I be an ally?" And the way that I ask uh, that, I've I've talked to about a dozen in the last week, uh, uh, Black. Uh, friends of mine or people who I had uh, acquaintance with that are either entrepreneurs or investors uh, who are black VCs or black uh, entrepreneurs. And I haven't said, what should I do or what can I do? I've said, what is one initiative that you are working on that I can help uh, you with time and money? And the reason I ask it that way, and I'm not, don't limit it to one per person, several of the people uh, there are multiple things that we're talking about doing. The burden of them telling me what to do is inappropriate. I don't want that. That's not right. It's not their job to tell me what to do. Um, and it's not uh, their job to find a thing for me to do. Uh, what I want to do yeah. is I want to be an advocate for something they're already involved in. And I want to help amplify that versus have to select based on specific things and by engaging not just with money, but with time, that's a way for me to learn um, uh, and to actively get involved uh, as an ad- advocate or ally, whichever language you'd like to use. So I, I, I strongly encourage from a bottoms up perspective, all of all of my peers to, to try to do stuff like that and not limit to that, but engage that way rather than, you know, I, I was invited to a group of, uh, I think the group itself was all, I don't think it was all male. I saw a couple of women on the list, but they were all white that wanted to talk about this issue. And I declined to participate in that particular group because I don't want to be part of a group of white people talking about the issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, already, there's already enough of those groups. 
know, I want to allocate my time against helping um, uh, black people with the things that they're already working on that they believe will make a difference. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, let's shift a little bit uh, to this notion of sort of mental wellness. I, I think it expands, you know, outside of some of the exhaustion, you know, black people may feel at a, at a recurring event like this one, but also, you know, I'll tie in COVID and just people being home and the isolation and, and sort of loss of, of interpersonal uh, opportunities that, that that's really crippling for people. I, I know you and the team have put together a pretty impressive mental wellness initiative. I'd love to just make sure that we, that we touch on that here. Yeah, a couple of different things on this front. I've been talking about mental health and mental wellness for a while publicly, uh, and it came from me in 2013 talking about the depressive episode that I had then that lasted about six months. I've had multiple depressive episodes that have been significant going back to my uh, 20s uh, in the early 1990s. Um, and when I had my first uh, serious depressive episode in his adult, I had an incredible shame uh, around it and very ashamed of, of, of uh, the experience, very ashamed of taking medicine, very ashamed of therapy. Uh, and in 2013, I w became motivated to, to lower and hopefully eliminate, but at the minimum, lower the stigma associated with mental health issues, especially in entrepreneurship. And uh, today, uh, we, we have a unprecedented, uh, in my mind, set of factors that are putting additional pressure on people who struggle with mental health issues. Um, uh, a couple of them being, uh, uh, you know, not notwithstanding you know, yet another extreme uh, recurrence of uh, visible racial inequity. Uh, and, you know, from my perspective, horrific leadership um, in our country from a top-down perspective uh, in the moment, a divisive approach rather than a unifying approach and, and you know, an aggressive, hostile approach rather than an empathetic approach. Um, but we also have had people for the last, you know, 45 days, 30 to 45 days cooped up in their houses, uh, you know, with their families living in a way that's completely unnatural uh, against, again, this backdrop of, you know, massive uh, economic inequity um, that's exacerbated um, by COVID uh, and a lack of functional resources that are available in this moment. Um you know, the, the, the ability for somebody to get therapeutic help via telemedicine is very limited. Uh, and in many places, there's no way to do it. And for many people, uh, there's no way to have it underwritten by insurance. And so even if you had insurance, you couldn't use it for uh, telemedicine help in the moment. Domestic violence, uh, when, when you have an issue of domestic violence and everybody's confined to their home, you don't think that that makes things more difficult for everybody that's already subject to it? Of course it does. Um, and so we have many of these, I could go on for a long time about different factors that collide. And I think uh, it's really important to just, uh, at a, as a start, state it. I mean, this is a very, very difficult time for, for human beings. And uh, one of the things that's powerful is for uh, groups that are affinity groups to help each other. So in Colorado, for example, uh, we started a new nonprofit called Energize Colorado to help 
businesses under 500 employees throughout the state. So, you know, in urban and rural Colorado, entrepreneurial companies, small business, local business, women-led, minority-led businesses, nonprofits even, um, uh, uh, because they are all part of the sub-500 person employee businesses. And, you know, in that, one of the initiatives that we created was a mental wellness initiative. Uh, and we've rallied an enormous number of resources already, and it's continuing um, uh, around helping entrepreneurs and business owners who are feeling extra layers of pressure and struggling with their own mental health in this moment, or who want to provide these kinds of resources for their employees who are also struggling in this moment. And, you know, in those situations where your visible peers are providing support for somebody or for an area where there's stigma or resistance or, you know, historical struggles to engage, those peer-driven dynamics in some ways really are helpful at lowering that kind of stigma. So I, I would encourage everybody to be aware of it. The other, the other which is really um, easy to say from a position of privilege, you know, where you have resources, uh, but very difficult to do if you don't, uh, is this whole notion of self-care and being able to create time and space for yourself and take care of yourself. Uh, for a lot of entrepreneurs and for a lot of people, that's possible. But there are many, many, many people in our society that literally can't because of the economic pressures they have, the family pressures, the time, um, you know, the physical configurations of their houses, uh, the resource constraints that they have financially, the cultural things they have to deal with, and recognizing that that's just another layer of mental stress uh, in the system, mental health stress in the system that we should be paying attention to is important. Yeah, that's fantastic. Let's dive into tech. Um, I want to spend some time, you know, getting your insights as someone that's seen .com, that's seen 0809. You, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've always found interesting is is so many people immediately think that the, the whole world is going to be flipped upside down, right? That there's all of these changes coming and that all industries and all things are going to change, whether that's early stage investors or growth stage investors or consumer or enterprise. You You spoke on this notion of, you know, less changing than people actually think. I, I, I thought I thought it was really interesting, and I wanted you to share that with with some of the listeners around. You know how to how to understand changes that are coming without thinking that uh, there is no such thing as a precedence. I think I think most of us get very excited, especially in tech, about rapid disruption, and you know this idea that this thing that we're doing at any moment in time or the macro context that we're operating in is going to have this, you know, rapid dislocation. Um, it, you know, if you watch any industry uh, sub-segment, uh, and Gartner made this very clear with the Gartner hype cycle many years ago, and it's awesome to watch, you know, new hotness after new hotness after new hotness uh, get mapped to the Gartner, Gartner hype cycle, where there's this huge amount of hype for a period of time then there's this trough of disillusionment where, you know, lots of things fail and lots of people say, well, there's nothing there. But the bottom of the trough of disillusionment is still higher than the starting point uh, of things. And over a long period of time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, there ultimately is really substantial change uh, in, in a category. 
uh, I think it applies to many things, especially crises. So if you think about the COVID crisis in tech, um, uh, and I'll map back to specifics, mid-March, March 11th was the last day I left my house. So I had probably a couple weeks of advance uh, experience because we have a lot of investments in Seattle. So I saw, saw Seattle start to really lock down um, and I got scared about the, the disease early. Um, a group of tech leaders in Colorado on the 11th had a meeting, about, about 50, somewhere between 50 and 100 of us made a call um, uh, for all the companies that could to go to work from home. I think that was on the 13th. Um, and, you know, by the following week, the COVID crisis was in full, you know, full bore. And, and the week after the last week of March, uh, lots of states started shutting down, uh, including Colorado. Uh, the, and, and not just tech, but everybody except for essential workers uh, shifting to work from home. Um, in the venture world, there was about 30 days of, oh, shit, everyone's going to die. And, you know, every venture firm, uh, us included, hopefully uh, did positive things across their portfolio versus just triage them into ones that were fine, ones that needed help and ones that were fucked. Um, and, you know, the situation awareness that you had to have was literally daily. And, you know, if you remember, this was the time period the stock market went from, you know, 30,000 to 18,000. And uh, everybody was, you know, because things were shut down, everybody was anticipating what was going to happen with unemployment. And uh, nobody really knew anything. And uh, about the only thing that was clear was if your business depended on travel, people traveling or people going to the office every day, uh, you know, you you were going to see a, a decline in revenue that was very, very, very steep. Um, but it was very hard to figure anything else out. And there's tons of prognostication about the venture market and valuations and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, if we look at this now on June 8th, so not quite three months later, um, if you had said on March 13th, here's what things look like on June 8th, my guess is nobody would have believed anything, right? The stock market's going to be eh, mostly back to where it was. You know, lots of companies are going to be funding, getting funded. There will be M&A activity. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of companies in some distress, but the government will have shipped out something like $2 trillion. U.S. government would have shipped out something like $2 trillion to businesses and, and people. Unemployment would be at, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 percent, depending on how you calculate it. Uh, but, you know, the macro doesn't seem to care that much about that. And, oh, there'd be riots in the streets because of another police killing and people would be ignoring uh, social distancing, which was so important for the suppression because of the the, the peaceful protests, but also more important, the you know, I think the peaceful protests and the riots, um, you know, people would be so needing to get out of their house that states would be uh, being more aggressive about eliminating social distancing and nobody would really be paying much attention to it because eh, it's summertime and I, uh, okay. <laughs> right. And and uh, I think it's just we're so bad at predicting even the short term. And the key thing uh, for yeah. tech and for innovation is that, yeah, things do change. 
Um, uh, but they don't change the way any of us anticipate. And if you really want to participate effectively in the change, you do have to play a long-term game uh, as an opportunistic uh, short-term game. If you're playing an opportunistic short-term game, sometimes you might get lucky, but you're not really going to be part of uh, the long-term systemic change. Yeah. That's great. And, and, it, and it loops into something else that I wanted to talk about, which is this notion that, you know, most of the warning systems that we have in place uh, actually aren't that good at warning us when they uh, are no longer going to warn us. I think it was a really interesting uh, piece that, that you had put together alongside the SK Ventures team. Give us a, a sense of how you think about that and, and maybe how that's starting to play a, a, a role in, in your investing thesis. Yeah, that... that um... Uh, that line came from that post was written by uh, uh, Paul Kadrowski and Eric Narlin of SK Ventures. I'm we're one of their LPs, and and I asked him if I could repost that on Feld.com um, uh, because uh, they didn't post it publicly anywhere, and I did. And um, the quote is from a book called Uncommon As Accidents by a guy named Charles Perrin that I read in the 1980s, just still such a durable book. So durable. Still relevant. And, and basically, you know, the 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 statement uh, is something to the effect of, uh, you know, the, if you think about a warning system, we build warning systems into all kinds of things. The, the thing that the warning system doesn't do uh, is it doesn't tell us when it's no longer effective as a warning system. And so, you know, we happily, you know, carry along with our lives expecting that our warning systems are going to tell us that there's a problem. Uh, and when they don't, um, uh, and a lot of times we, you know, whatever's going on, we end up being deeply and truly fucked in terms of the situation, whether it's a company uh, or a social structure uh, or a project or an interaction between two things um, or, you know, systems that are trying to keep us safe in some ways. Um, and interestingly for me, um, I think a lot of people try to make short-term decisions based on, uh, the data they're getting, including, again, I used the word situation analysis earlier. And so you, a lot of people try to make definitive decisions on situational analysis uh, and the warning signs they're seeing or their interpretation of the warning signs they're seeing, rather than using that situational analysis to help them adjust their hypotheses. And so I think if you're a little more careful about what the inputs are, you start to understand that, or, or if you can think about, I understand it's the wrong word, you start to think about things as a complex system rather than a complicated system. A complicated system is uh, something that has a deterministic outcome. So when the warning light goes off, you do the following four things and the warning light then goes off. It stops blinking, right? So red light blinks, okay? The manual says do these four things. I do these four things, red light stops blinking. Um, you know, red light comes on, you know, gas is low. I go to the gas station, I fill my car up, red light goes off. Um, that's actually probably a simple system, not a complicated system, unless you can't find a gas station. There's, there is no gas available. Um, complex systems are ones where the outputs become inputs into the system. So, you know, red light starts blinking um, and there isn't a, a set of rules that tell you how to turn the red light off. Uh, so you take your best guess at a couple of the rules and they might turn that red light off, but they turn on a yellow light and another red light somewhere else. 
And then you do some things to try to adjust that yellow light and that red light, and then four red lights come on. Um, and then you realize that of the four red lights that just came on, one of those red lights is actually broken. It's not really blinking. It was a red light that you knew was blinking already because it was blinking from the last time, right? So the, the cause and effect loops continue. And so many of the things that we deal with in modern life are complex systems, mm-hmm. rather complicated systems. And so this whole notion that we can have deterministic outcomes is flawed. And uh, the best, in my experience, the best entrepreneurs, uh, if somebody's working on, you know, trying to build a startup community uh, in their city, or they're trying to build any sort of social structure, or they're trying to affect any kind of change, uh, or they're trying to create any kind of new product or new business, they realize that there's, there are deterministic elements of activities that you do. But the overall arc of what you're doing is non-deterministic or complex. And as a result, you have to constantly be reassessing what's going on based on the outputs that you're getting generated and how you then feed them into new inputs into the system over a period of time. I'll I'll end with on this. One of the things about complex systems, and COVID uh, is, is such a great example of this, is this notion of contagion. Uh, and we're so used to contagion in the context of disease, but uh, in a complex system, we have both negative contagion and positive contagion, right? Things can have a positive contagion and they can all of a sudden have this rapid amplification effect. Uh, uh, and it's not just, you know, that somebody liked the product, but lots of different things that you can do can generate that. By the way, Uber early on would be a good example of positive contagion. So your right? common network effect. Right. At one day we woke up and Uber was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and they weren't everywhere because it was the most awesome product in the world. It, you know, there was a lot of other stuff that went into that, including huge amounts of financial incentives, marketing, a change in the labor dynamics, uh, you know, very, very specific and deliberate focus in certain geographies, a, a complete disregard for any of the local laws um, and a belief that downstream they'd be able to deal with that. Right. All of those things were, were part of these inputs. Uh, that generated this very complex positive contagion. Mm-hmm. In the case of COVID, right, we just had an extreme example of negative contagion. I, I read today that I don't, I didn't remember who put put it out. It was credible, like uh, a credible organization put it out. Maybe it was World Health Organization, which I understand some people are trying to undermine. Um, uh, but I, I don't have a lot of respect for that. Um, uh, but whatever the organization was, they said that the lockdowns prevented based on modeling uh, worldwide, roughly another 60 million infections. And, uh, you know, even if you did a tenth of that, another 6 million infections in the timeframe would have overwhelmed the healthcare system uh, in many many places. And if you realize how much we've learned about the disease in the last 60 days, one of the things that nobody's talking about is a very clear understanding not not comprehensive, but of lots of very specific things that early on were treatment factors that turned out to be bad ideas, mm-hmm. right? Um, shoving a ventilator down everybody's throat when they had a pulse ox that went below a blood oxygen level that went yeah. below 85 turned out to be a bad idea. Um, and, you know, at the beginning, like that was the protocol. And that wasn't because doctors are stupid. That was because nobody had any experience with the disease. So, I, I just come back to this. Like we have so many things that are contagion, positive and negative, mm-hmm. and that interact with each other. 
and that are part of this idea of a complex system. And yet as humans, we want straight lines, we want deterministic outcomes, we want to have certainty, and uh, we just can't. And so recognizing that the warning systems are not going to give us the right answers all the time and that we have to approach it differently, I think is imperative. By the way, I think this is going to get harder in the future, not easier. Um, And I think that, you know, the unintended consequences, for example, of uh, pervasive global social media is not limited to its influence on elections. If you think about how it's modified, uh, even just traditional media and traditional reporting, not just the economics of it, but the content that's produced and how we make decisions and how we validate information and what we regard as factually true or not um, is, is completely different uh, than a decade ago, 20 years ago. Pick your time frame. And so decision-making frameworks are different as a result. That's fascinating. Uh, two more for you, Brad. This has been super fun, and I really appreciate you, you being here and hearing some of your thoughts. Uh, continuing on, on this notion of the warning systems, you know, I, I think inevitably what that then suggests is that humans will play a larger role in, in the sort of big data and modeling uh, schema that we look to, to sort of embody and embrace in tech um, than, than maybe others are suggesting. Uh, to talk about the role of human intervention and, and making sure that some, you know, as these failures uh, begin to permeate, that, that we have people there ready to, to correct them. So this is an endlessly philosophical discussion um, that probably goes back to the 19 late 50s, early 60s, you know, when artificial intelligence began to be a thing uh, talked about primarily, you know, in multiple places, but uh, then amplified, you know, at a few places, MIT and Stanford and a few others. Um, I, I gave a talk in 2012, uh, which I believe was the year that big data was the term of the year. You know, every year in tech, we have a term of the year. And, and big data was the term, maybe it was 2013. And that, and I was the keynote for a conference in Boston uh, just because I happened to be in Boston. And I guess they thought that I was uh, uh, going to be. <laughs> and I had, uh, I had only one slide, which was my opening slide that I put up, which uh, said big, the, the keynote talk was titled Big Data is Bullshit. Um, I don't think the conference organizers quite expected, expected something like that from me. But probably not and, you know, I went on to say, look, in 20 years, what we define as big data today, we will refer to as nanoscopic data. Um, you know, the trend that we're dealing with, the phenomena that we're dealing with is the ability for hardware and software uh, and algorithms to process uh, a, a geometrically increasing amount of data and for systems to generate uh, a geometrically increasing amount of data. And that is a good thing. Um, that is an important technological change. Um, however, uh, many of the things that people are talking about here is simply the phenomena of generating, consuming, and analyzing substantially more data which today feels like a lot, but even in a couple of years is not going to feel like very much. Interestingly, of course, with the advent of machine learning, now nobody really uses the phrase big data anymore. The phrase everybody uses is machine learning. And of course, machine learning implies that you're dealing with very, very large data sets. 
Um, and, you know, some of the very, very large data sets that were the ones that people started to come up with new ways to think about things were, you know, things like massive amounts of photos, which of course were data sets being generated by humans mm -hmm. taking lots of photos all of a sudden with a technology called a smartphone that allowed them to take photos and automatically have it uploaded to the cloud. Um, and so there's all these things that have this human computer interaction dynamic uh, that it's very easy to try to isolate and uh, and focus on and say these are computers doing these things and it's all you know this sort of magic automation, but in many ways there is a human component of that uh, at some level, and the the you know again the endless philosophical discussion is uh, is the machine able to get smart enough to do more than you know beat people at go which is kind of a crazy statement to even say because I think about five years ago, somebody would have said, there's no way a computer can beat somebody at Go, right? It's the same thing that 15 years ago, somebody said, or 20 years ago, somebody said, computers won't beat people at chess. And so our ability to actually understand um, the, and I, I don't want to overuse the phrase second order effect. I think I used it earlier, but it is a second order effect. You know, the first order effect is a thing we build. The second order effect is the, is the, the, the thing that happens. And it happens becomes, again, it's a complex system and input into the next thing we build and sort of what we're doing with this and how it's impacting us as a species. Um, and then how all of those other things are occurring. And I'll, I'll give an example um, that's, that's not just data. Uh, I'm not remember where I saw the first article, but then there was a wave of them about uh, the... Uh, showed pictures of cities um, 30 days before the lockdowns and 30 days after the lockdowns uh, and the pollution index in those cities. Yeah. And it was startling, not just the numbers, but actually to see the pictures um, and not just in, you know, Pickett's industrial city in China, but all over the world. And um you know, I, I experience it here in Colorado, not not so much the pollution index, but the sound. So, you know, for the last two months working at home, I mean, you hear the birds in the background, um, the amount of ambient noise, uh, whether it's planes or cars or whatever, has gone down dramatically. And when I was a kid, noise pollution was the big thing everybody talked about. Or one of the big things that I remember everybody talking about how much noise pollution there was. Um, you know, no airplanes flying overhead, like just such changes that are very hard to anticipate what those changes actually mean and translate into. Yeah. Finally, Brad, you asked um, me about big wanna... data and I went on some rant about something. No, you didn't. It was fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love the afternoon it. with me. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, but I, I, I want to end on something that I've certainly taken uh, near and dear to my heart as, as an aspiring investor. And I, I frankly think it, it, you know, whether you're uh, an aspiring investor, an aspiring founder, uh, social justice activist, you know, you talk about this notion of never having fake days and, and really sort of putting your all into the things that you do and, and sort of always showing up. I, I think it's a really important message. And especially for some of the younger people listening, you know, talk about this notion and, and, and some of the ways that you think people can be active in, in a time like today. Sure. Um, VCs in particular, but actually it's not just VCs, VCs, CEOs, people in leadership roles, 
have an enormous amount of of what I label fake fake time uh, time that they do things that are are not really uh, uh, sincere, impactful, or meaningful. Uh, and it came from, and this is not that they're spending time, you know, kind of uh, taking care of themselves. This is in the work modality. I think the first time I heard the phrase was from Mark Pincus at Zynga when I was on his board. Uh, and we had we had gone and I don't remember which thing it was. Maybe it was, we, we got some, uh, we, we were like the board of the Fortune. Yeah, that was it. It was Fortune private uh, company board you know, section where they had like five company, private companies that were hot flying private companies and they put their boards up and we spent, I don't know, three or four hours uh, getting our photos taken with a bunch of animals because of uh, Farmville uh, in some warehouse in San Francisco. And then it ended up being a picture in Fortune. Uh, And uh, I remember Mark just bitching about this is such a fake, a fake day, a fake CEO day. No, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. It's just a waste of a day. It's a fake CEO day. And so I took that to heart. I mean, I don't know that I interpreted exactly the same way he did, but it was this idea that um, we spend a lot of time as people in our professional worlds, whether we're VCs or entrepreneurs on things that we feel obligated to do, but we haven't chosen to do. And we feel obligated to do because the system thinks we should do it whatever the system is, or we decide we should do it because of whatever the exogenous, you know, characteristics of landscape are. And I'll use this as an example. Um, I, I very deliberately chose when COVID started, uh, knowing that, you know, I'm, I write a lot, I'm visible, I do lots of interviews, um, that I would do an hour a day of public facing stuff, whether it was a live video or a podcast. And I also decided that my my selection criteria for it would be random based on people that reached out to me versus deliberate in terms of trying to have a message and get the same message across over and over again. Um, and that was a deliberate choice, right? Why did, why did I choose to do it? I chose to do it because I knew that I'd be spending uh, a lot of hours and it's been, you know, 12, 10, 12 hours a day grinding on lots of other stuff through this, both my portfolio, helping with the Colorado COVID crisis um, and, you know, engaging in things that would stretch me. And I didn't expect to be engaging in uh, Black Lives Matter and racial equity in this moment. But that's another example of a thing that I would put in the category of uh, important to me to engage with now, um, but also on a sustainable way. So for me, doing a random podcast or live webcast every day around content that I was comfortable riffing about actually feeds me, right? It's, it makes me feel better. I, I hope that somebody listens to this and gets some value from it. Um, I hope you enjoy doing this. Uh, I hope this is useful to you. But it's a selfish act because I just want some stuff during the day. Uh, that's in the random category. Um, and uh, that allows me to spend the other bunch of hours not on fake VC stuff. Um, you know, the fake CEO stuff a lot of times gets masqueraded as networking, but I put it even inside the context of a company, uh, fake VC stuff too with that, put it inside the context of the company. What are the things as a CEO that you're spending your time on 
um, before you got locked into your house and worked from home and had to deal with a crisis in a distributed workforce, what were things that in the last 60 days you, you just didn't do? And do you need to do any of those? Are any of those actually important for you or for your business? Um, I just don't think people think about those things enough and spend a lot of their time on things that have either no positive emotional value for them or no impact for their business. Going through yep. the motions. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I can certainly speak uh, as a black investor myself and say, uh, I really do appreciate, you know, you stepping up as a leader and, and being a part of this, this moment and, and really just saying enough is enough with us. Um, so, so thank you from, from myself and certainly from a lot of others. Uh, for your work, Brad, and and really appreciate you being here and uh, and doing this podcast. I know I got a lot out of it, and I'm I'm sure a lot of the listeners will as well. So thank, thank you, you so for much. the kind words, and I'll go a step further, Brian. Don't don't end our relationship with this. Um, uh, you know, take to heart what I said before uh, earlier, which is, um, uh, how can I help you with things that you're already doing? Uh, right. Do not Absolutely. with time time and money are the two resources I have for that. Do not be bashful uh, about reaching out anytime uh, in the future for me to help you with those things. That's really, you know, hopefully it's good for you or I think it would be good for you since you're choosing it. And it's good for me because I'll learn. And so it's not, it's not a selfless yeah. act. It's part of my own education in a way that doesn't create cognitive overhead for you because I'm supporting something you're already doing. Absolutely. Brad Felder, the Foundry Group, thank you so much for joining me. Really Brian, appreciate thanks. it. Brian, thanks. Take care.